So, uh, like I said, um, my name is Ben Bechtel. Uh, I'm on staff here as the youth and music director. I'm not usually up here preaching. Uh, but this morning I get the privilege to do that. And about four to five times a year I get the privilege uh, of doing that. And that's, it's a small enough time and it's a novel enough thing that every time that I preach, I get the privilege of my whole family coming uh, to hear me preach. And some of you have joked with me before, like, oh, your fan club's here. And uh, I'd just like to say that if my mom is one of the five members of the fan club, it's not a real fan club. Uh, but since they're here this morning, uh, I'm going to open my sermon with a family story that is one of our favorites, and uh, we're going to let you in on this story. Um, so this is completely at the expense of my pap, who's here today. So, uh, But we were together, I think it was around Christmas time, I think that's a safe bet, the holiday season, you know, you're with family sometimes, and it's not the most uh, joyous all the time, you know, sometimes you get on people's nerves and there are uh, conflicts, so we're just going to assume it was around Christmas time, and, uh, and my, my, my pap was getting frustrated with his sister-in-law, my aunt Nancy, and uh, things were getting, he was just getting frustrated with her, and he came into the kitchen, and there was some, some people in the kitchen there, and he just, out of frustration, just lets out he says, you know what I can't stand about Nancy? At that moment, Nancy opened the door from the basement and said, I don't know, Fred, what can't you stand about Nancy? <laughs> and uh, I'll just say that my pap is the wisest man that I know. Uh, I talk with him almost every day on the phone and uh, to get wisdom from him. This is the only time I've ever seen him make a fool of himself. <laughs> but this story illustrates something for us about biblical wisdom that's key to understand. That's this. is that the difference between wisdom and folly is all about your position. And what I mean by that is, in that situation, my pap felt like he was free to speak openly about how he was feeling about Nancy. He assumed a position that he did not actually have. He assumed that he was in private and could speak freely. And that's exactly what you and I do. And that's what the character Elihu does in the book of Job that we're going to be introduced to here this morning. He assumes a posture that he does not have. And this character trait that we share illustrates something even bigger for us, and that's this. It's that in our foolishness, we believe that we can see others from the perspective of God. However, we're going to learn this morning through the words of this man, Elihu, that it's only from a posture of humility and submission before God that we can offer wisdom to those who are suffering in our midst. So with that said, uh, I would invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Job chapter 32. Uh, Elihu uh, speaks in the book of Job for six chapters. He talks from chapter 32 to 37. Uh, so we're not going to read all of that here at the beginning of the sermon like we typically do. But we're just going to read the first five verses of chapter 32, uh, which introduce us to this man, Elihu. And if you're wondering, if you're using a Bible on the back of the pews there, it's on page 550. All right, so this is what Job chapter 32 says, starting in verse 1. It says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. 
Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I want to invite you to pray with me now that God would teach us from his holy word. Lord God, uh, we come to you this morning in a posture of humility, recognizing that uh, we receive everything from your hand. So Lord, we pray that we would open our hands in humility to receive the teaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts by the power of your spirit uh, through your word to convict us of sin, to point us to Jesus, and to comfort us in suffering. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the way that I want to go about uh, studying these six chapters here this morning is I want to first address the issue of what in the world this man named Elihu is doing in the book of Job. And so I'm just going to be forthright with you. I think that we're supposed to see Elihu as a fool and not a wise man. And we're going to talk about that first and see why we're supposed to see him as a fool. And then we're going to learn four principles of wisdom that we see in contrast to Elihu's foolishness. So we're going to establish who he is, what he's doing, and then we're going to look at these four principles of wisdom that we can learn uh, from him, or rather in contrast to him. So if you all were here uh, for Jason's sermon last week, then you'll likely remember that Job has just finished his appeal to God. So he's gone back and forth with these friends of his for chapter upon chapter. And now finally he says, enough is enough. I'm innocent. My sin did not cause my suffering. And Job appeals to God's higher court. And it's directly after this that we read in chapter 32, verse 1, that these three friends ceased to answer Job. They were like, okay, this isn't doing anything. We're not getting anywhere with this guy. We're just going to stop and be quiet from here on out. And they're done trying to convince Job of their position, which is that Job's sin directly caused his suffering. And now, Seemingly out of nowhere, this fiery young man named Elihu steps in and proceeds to speak for six chapters to tell Job and the friends that they are both wrong. And he believes, in contrast to both of them, that he has the true solution to this problem of suffering in Job's life. And I, too the young man of our preaching team, come to you this morning to provide answers that Jason and Benjamin cannot provide for the midst of your suffering. So that's why I'm here today. Now that's, that's, a, that's a joke. That's a joke. Okay, so if you're new here this morning and you'll learn by the end of the sermon, that's obviously a joke. Uh, but there is some truth to it in the sense of, I think that's kind of how we're supposed to see Elihu in the book. So to illustrate this further, for those of you who are in our church and, and know me pretty well, you'll know that I'm in seminary right now. And uh, I'm about halfway through my degree. But the first 
semester, I remember a professor warning my class about this thing that he called first semester seminary student syndrome. You could tell that guy was a pastor in the past. Uh, But this disease affects those who are only in seminary for a short while to fill up their minds with knowledge. They have enough theology to be dangerous, but not enough theology coupled with love to be helpful and effective in a role in the church. And so what these students do is they fill their head with knowledge and then they get really angry and fired up and then they run back into their local churches to fix everything that had gone wrong up to that point before it's too late and that church is lost forever. You see the, the, the arrogance in this a little bit, right? And the, and the silliness. Uh, but this is what Elihu is like. And to put it another way, he, he's like a recent college graduate who's at a job for two months and starts pointing out everything that's wrong with the company and how he's going to fix it. And now what's, what's interesting is, is both, the, both of these examples, the seminary student and the recent college graduate, they're full of knowledge, right? What that seminary student has to say is probably true. That person's been educated. What this recent college graduate has to say probably is true. They probably have their mind full of uh, all types of useful knowledge in the fields of business or marketing or engineering or whatever else. But they completely misapply that truth when it comes down to it being in relationship with other people. Now, some people see Elihu as a type of setup man here in the book. So, God comes in in chapter 38, immediately after Elihu's speech, and uh, kind of puts everything right with his speech. And some see Elihu as kind of like God's hype man here in the book of Job. So he's like kind of setting the stage for God to come in and set Job straight. But I think that's to completely miss the portrait that's being painted of Elihu here. I think it's better to see him as a type of satirical almost comic relief caricature type of character who who caricatures the wisdom of young men. And there are many reasons that I could give you to show you why this is the case, and I'm going to throughout the sermon, but I want us to see the main reason why this has to be the case, I think, from the text. And that's this, is that at rock bottom, what Elihu says and what Job's friends say are the same. His accusation and their accusation of Job at the base is the same. So look with me at chapter 34, verses 7 and 8. It'll be on the screen as well, too. This is Elihu speaking, and he says, What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? So do you see what he's doing here? He, like the friends, is contradicting God's words that Job is upright and claims that Job ultimately has experienced suffering as a result of his life of sin previously, of him walking with wicked men. And think about this in context, too. This is right off of the heels of Job going before God and saying, I'm innocent, And now this guy jumps right in and continues to call Job a wicked man. The friends are a lot wiser than Elihu at this point because they just shut up and they stop talking. But he continues on and on and on. And like I said, he says many things that are true 
about God and about Job in these six chapters. And likewise, Job in the book up to this point says many things that are untrue about God. He calls God unjust at times. He accuses God of chasing him down and hunting him with injustice. Those are not theologically correct claims about God, right? We would not say that God's unjust in any way, shape, or form. But Elihu is shown to be a fool because he doesn't call Job's speech wicked. He says that Job's previous wickedness is the cause of his suffering, just like the friends did. And that's why I don't think we have any other choice but to take him to be a fellow fool who's lumped in with the three friends. Okay, so now that we have that portrait of Elihu established, let's go and look at what we can learn by contrasting uh, wisdom with his folly. So four things here. The first uh, is that a fool provides more heat than light. I don't know that idiom, more heat than light. I don't know how many of you have experienced or heard that saying before. I've just come across it recently, but I found it really effective. Uh, and it's a really helpful idiom that captures something in shorthand. So what, what the idiom means, it uses fire as a metaphor. And it's talking about somebody who, in conversation with them, in their input in a situation, merely stirs the pot uh, and gets people angrier, um, but doesn't actually provide any sort of illumination or insight into a situation, right? They, to continue the fire analogy, they just kind of stoke the coals, uh, but they don't actually give any further knowledge. And I think that our, our culture today illustrates this truth before our very eyes. I think we live in a culture that's characterized by this saying of more heat than light. And think of, we live in a culture of perpetual outrage. There's always something to be outraged about, right? There are so many things to care about. You have to speak up about all of them. And if you don't, or you do in a way that I don't agree with, then I will get very offended and angry at you. Is that not what your Facebook timelines look like? I know that's what my Twitter timeline looks like. But our culture is king at stirring anger and outrage without facts and reasoned dialogue. Now, before I go any further, there are things that our culture is fired up about that we as the church should be fired up about. There are evils in our country, right? Racism and sexual assault are evil. The church should be fired up about those things. We should be fighting against those things. But the problem becomes whenever we live in a culture where we're always angry, we're always supposed to be angry about something, but we actually don't bring any new knowledge or insight into how to solve or deal with a situation. And I think that Elihu is exactly like our culture on this point. And so notice in those first five verses that I read at the beginning, the beginning of chapter 32, it's said in those verses that Elihu burned with anger four times in five verses. So anytime that you're reading the Bible and anything is repeated that much in a short amount of time, that's like a big red light going off and saying, hey, stop. What you are reading is important. Focus on this. And so the author makes a point that we see that Elihu is coming into this situation. He's speaking up from a place 
of outrage, of burning with anger. And this picture of Elihu as a hot-headed fool only grows when we realize, like I said earlier, that he adds nothing new to this debate. Now, some would argue that Elihu does say things that are different than Job's friends, and I think that's true. Like, If you read these chapters for yourself, you'll be able to pick out some arguments that he makes that are different. But like I said earlier, he still draws that therefore conclusion that Job's suffering is a necessary consequence of Job's past sin. And he has nothing new to say here. Elihu's argument is the same as the friend's. He doesn't provide any more light than heat. He's just angrier than the three miserable comforters are about it. And I think there's something absolutely profound for us to learn here about the way in which we comfort each other in suffering. If we are being honest, it's very, very easy for us to be annoyed or angered by people who are suffering. We can feel impatient. Think about it. We go to the same hospital bed day after day. We hear the same groanings. We hear the same complaints. We can get tired of hearing people wrestle with God over the same issues again and again. However, God calls us as people who follow him to enter into those situations with patience and love. And to respond not out of anger, but out of grace and love for those who are suffering. So what we don't want to do with those in suffering is we don't want to come in and trample on people who are in trouble. God calls us to continue spending the night in the hospital. To continue to bear with our friends who have the same gripes with God in their situation over and over again. He calls us to respond to suffering, not with anger, but with the fruit of the Spirit on display for those who we are comforting comforting to see. We're not to be like Elihu. We're not to come to people in suffering with burning anger. Only when we come with love and grace to those in suffering will we actually shed any light on their situation and provide hope and encouragement for them. Second, A fool claims to speak on behalf of God. Listen to this statement made by Elihu. This is in in chapter 36, verses 2 through 4. He says, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. (laughs) I'm really glad you did that, Jason. (laughs) That I think that's how we're supposed to react whenever we read that. I mean, can you just hear the arrogance dripping from that, right? Okay, so you hear him and you're like, okay, he says in verse two, bear with me a little, I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Okay, so right there you're like, all right, you're claiming to speak for God. That's probably pause number one. Then verse 3, I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. Awesome, we're with you. Then verse 4, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And that's where we should say, stop. (laughs) Not at all. 
Uh, I mean, think about this in context, too. There is, like, the wisest men in the world have been with Job comforting him. And this godly man, Job, has been responding to them. And this guy walks in and says, it's all right, guys, don't worry. I'm here. I've got all the answers for you. Just ask me. I'll provide them. I got you. I I just, the, the arrogance in this dude is just like none other. And he claims to have these answers authoritatively from God. And some of you in here have experienced the destruction caused by people who claim such things in your life. By people who claim to speak in such a way in your life. Maybe some of you have been injured or have a life-threatening illness and have been told by somebody that God is going to heal you and if he doesn't, you don't have enough faith. Or maybe some of you have lost your job and you're wrestling with what to do and you feel unstable and unsure and you have a family to provide for and that friend comes up to you and authoritatively tells you which option is right which one God told them to tell you to take. Don't get me wrong. God does give us guidance in the matters of life. He does tell us how to live in confusing situations. And he does sometimes delight himself in healing us of our sickness and our illnesses. And God does speak to us authoritatively. But it is not through our mouths It's through his word, right? It's as we see Christ by the power of the spirit in his word that he speaks to us authoritatively. It is not by our human mouthpieces, right? We don't have a higher authority to appeal to than God's word. And when we attempt to, it only results in the harm of those around us. If you want to speak authoritative words of comfort and care to those in suffering, don't speak. Open your Bible, That's what we need to be doing. God's word comforts us. Let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, Commentator uh, Tremper Longman has something to say about this point. I think this is superb. He says, Plenty of people adorn their own thoughts with the assertion that God is speaking through them, or the broader claim that they can name God's purposes in the events of the day. Before we claim that our beliefs are God's, by stating that the Spirit of God is speaking through us, we should stop, reflect, and pray. I think that is, those are incredibly wise words. And I think we should only claim that God's words are our words when we are speaking directly in accordance with what's written in the Scriptures. And even then... I think we should pause because I think, as Scripture tells us, that our hearts are way more deceitful than we could even know. And there are ways in which we can use the Scriptures to harm one another and not to build one another up. So the Spirit does use us to speak words of wisdom to our brother and sister who are suffering. But he does not want us to stand over them and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord statements from our own mouth. Rather, I think the posture that we are to take to our brothers and sisters in suffering is to enter into their situation, listen to them, cry with them, and offer spiritual wisdom as needed, always couched in the claim that this is only our human wisdom. 
And then when we want to give authoritative comfort and care, we open God's word and we let that do the healing work that we know that it can do. Well, this leads us right into our next point. And that's that a fool misuses the words of God. Now, like I said earlier, uh, Elihu is a complex character in this book. And what he says sometimes is very true about God and Job's situation. So let me show you that. So this is chapter 37, uh, verse 6 and 10 to 12. Listen to these words and tell me if you can find a problem with this. Or whether, or if you would just give a hearty amen to these words. He says, For to the snow, God says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter at his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Do you have any problem with that? No. God's in control of the weather. He's sovereign over the weather patterns. He is ultimately the cause for all things that happen on earth. That's great. We're all, that's, that's great. In fact, this sounds, if you were to copy and paste this into the chapters that follow that we're going to study next week where God is talking, this sounds exactly like what God says of himself. So why am I saying that Elihu is foolish on this point? When he's speaking true words about God. Well, let me answer that question by way of a hypothetical story. And I recognize when I say hypothetical, this may not be hypothetical for some of you here. Let's say that suddenly out of nowhere, you're diagnosed with a fatal disease in which you have six months to live. And rightly, you're struggling with this diagnosis what its purpose is, and why in the world God would allow something so terrible to come upon you. And one day, your Christian friend comes over and you spill your struggles to her. You pour your heart out to her. And rightly, she reaches a Bible. She wants to comfort you with the words of God, like we just said. And she opens to that famous passage of Christian scripture in Romans eight twenty eight that says, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. These words of comfort from the Apostle Paul. And she then concludes that since you're wrestling with God in this situation, since you're struggling so much with it, you don't really trust God or else you would believe his promises. And notice what the friend does with God's word here. God's word is not used to comfort the suffering person. It has the effect of heaping shame and guilt upon them for genuinely working through their emotions about suffering before God. And I think that this right here is one of the major weaknesses of our stream and strand of the church here in America. Because for so many of us, Let's just have a moment of honesty. Unless you've had a tragic piece of suffering happen in your family with health-related things, we have no idea what suffering and tragedy and hardship looks like comparably. And I think that we have a tendency in suffering to go to God's word, which is great. Obviously, we just talked about that. That's great. 
But I think that we only turn to certain sections of it and not others. So, for instance, we cite Romans 8.28. We'll cite that all day long. But we completely ignore the Psalms of Lament. We act as if those aren't even in the Christian scripture. Or we cite the beginning of Job that says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song here on Sunday morning and we clap our hands. And then we ignore just a little over a chapter after that where Job is so sorrowful in the middle of his suffering that he laments the fact that he was born. While Romans 8.28 is true, Romans 8.28 alone, without the full counsel of God, is an incomplete theology. And it can be used to run roughshod over people's genuine emotions before God. And this is what Elihu does here in these chapters. He takes words that are true about God and he misuses them so that he harms Job rather than heals him and binds him up. Church, is this us? Do we go to our small groups or our various Bible studies and times in Christian fellowship and do this? Do we go into a situation of comfort as a scripture verse robot, as a theological Mr. Fix-It? Do we simply rattle off verses from scripture without listening to the pain of those in suffering? And I, I just... We were just talking about this at my small group a couple weeks ago. Like, how many times, for those of you in here who have struggled with anxiety or depression, you tell that to somebody in the church, and they cite a verse like Romans 8.28, and they say, just trust God, it'll get better. That is not the full counsel of God on this issue. And I would encourage us as a church to be deeper than that to listen better than that, to dig into those portions of Scripture that not only talk about joy in our suffering, but talk about working through our hard and difficult emotions before God and bearing our souls before Him and actually giving words to our human experience. We're not robots. We're not, it's not as simple as we hear this verse of Scripture and it goes right into our mind and then it's all joy every hour of every day, no matter what our circumstances. We need to sit with one another in suffering with the full counsel of God to bear and allow ourselves room to process things before the Lord. And this is what Elihu does not do. And we as a church need to be wiser than he and allow God's spirit to work in those situations. Lastly, a fool assumes the posture of God. I think this is the element in Elihu's character that ultimately, at the base, makes him foolish. He assumes to be able to see and do what only God can see and do. So he postures himself to be able to see Job's heart, and he calls him a wicked man. He postures himself in the position of God, and he calls Job to account in chapter 37. He acts as if he is God in the way that he treats Job and his suffering. Which is what makes this final statement that he speaks in this long six six chapters so very ironic. So this is chapter 37, verse 24. This is the last sentence that Elihu utters in the book. He says, Therefore men fear him, 
He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Elihu needs to heed his own wisdom here. And so do we. We all must recognize our posture as a creature, as one who receives all things from God. That's where true wisdom begins. Right? This, this echoes the words of Proverbs chapter 1. Right? Real, true wisdom begins as we bow before the Lord in fear and worship and reverence. And Elihu doesn't do this. Rather, he sets himself in the position of God over Job and ultimately fails to speak words of true wisdom and comfort to Job. And Elihu can't lead us into true wisdom. I think that's been pretty apparent throughout this sermon. But there is one who can lead us into true wisdom. This is John uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. This is an account of one of Jesus' miracles. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then in verse 7, he goes on to heal this blind man. So clearly, the disciples are still having a bit of Job, Job's comforters hangover here at this point. They are still thinking in the same ways that these comforters are thinking. But do you notice how Jesus' mindset is different? You see, Jesus could have jumped in with them and accused this man or his family of sin. He could have directly related this man's suffering to his sin, but he didn't do that. Rather than accusing this man, as Satan and the friends and Elihu have done to Job, Jesus acted as this man's advocate. Jesus acted as this man's advocate by declaring that the suffering he experiences happens not because of any flaw in himself, but because of God's mysterious sovereign plan. And he defends this man's character before the disciples. And it's exactly for that reason that Jesus ends up going to the cross. Because this is what he does for all of us as he goes to the cross. He takes the false accusations of man upon himself. His friends, his comforters in his hour of need, not only speak ill of him, they completely abandon him. But in the fear of the Lord, Jesus submits himself to the Father's plan. And he dies on the cross for us. And he rises again, and now he sits at the right hand of God as our eternal advocate before God for all who would trust in him. So what that means for us is that Jesus understands your suffering this morning. If you place faith in him, he stands before the throne of God not to accuse you, but to plead your cause before the throne of God. These, I came across these words uh, just this morning. I was reading um, in an old uh, Presbyterian hymnal. Uh, this is a hymn of Isaac Watts, who is one of the uh, one of the most uh, famous hymn writers, and uh, in the 1700s. And he has this hymn called "Jesus, My Great High Priest." This is the third verse of this hymn. 
He says, my advocate appears for my defense on high. The father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away. Friends, this is your savior. He's the one who pleads before you on high before God. So my encouragement this morning is that you would bow down in worship of him, that you would fear him this morning. And when you do that, two amazing things happen. If you are here and you're suffering and you fear the Lord, you find comfort because you know that no matter what you are experiencing, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he is pleading your cause before God the Father this morning, this very moment. If you walked in here this morning with baggage and so much going on in your life that you can hardly breathe, Jesus, if you have faith in him, is pleading you before the Father this morning on the basis of what he's done for you. That's good news. That's comforting news. And so you know no matter what happens, it's not that Jesus doesn't love you. And that's good news. Also, if you are here this morning and you bow before that Savior as your advocate, it gives you such humility. Because you see the God of the universe in human form. He bowed himself before his Father. And so what that allows us to do as people who follow him is it allows us to comfort others in humility. It allows us to act like Christ's acts to us and to be defenders of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be their advocates in suffering and to stick up, with, uh, stick up for them, fight through it with them, and to ultimately struggle to trust God together and no matter what circumstances come our way. So I pray that we would leave here this morning a church that is comforted and encouraged and a church that's humbled by Christ's love, a church that sits with each other in suffering and acts not as an accuser, as Satan does, but acts as advocates of one another, as Christ does for us in his love. Amen. Uh, I'll invite the worship team back up to lead us in one final song as I pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that at the right hand of you on high stands Jesus Christ, the one who went through hell and back again in order that he might save us. So Lord, we thank you that what that means for us right now in this moment, as you pray on our behalf before the Father, is that you love us and we can never be plucked out of your hand. And you keep us eternally. Lord, I pray that that news would humble us and would enable us to be people who speak true words of comfort and wisdom to one another. May we be a church who grows in this. That as we suffer in all of our unique ways together, that we may be able to speak words of comfort and hope and love. Because we have seen that comfort and love in Jesus Christ and are immensely grateful and humbled before you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.